0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're looking this evening at verses 5 through 11. 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 11. Hear the Word of God. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to uh, reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. What I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the Scriptures, and Lord, we ask this evening for the grace of your spirit as we study them to profit thereby. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most difficult aspects of church life is church discipline. Uh, it's It's an occurrence that calls for great wisdom, great discretion, not only on the part of the leadership, but on the part of membership of the church as well. And in our own day, uh, discipline faces several challenges in the church, not the least of which is the threat of legal retaliation, uh, as well as uh, the uh, exaltation of tolerance as the supreme virtue, uh, which would respond, well, who are you to judge? And so church discipline is a difficult task and yet a necessary task, a biblically commanded task uh, for the Christian church. Uh, Discipline is also a vital component of any healthy uh, and biblical and living, truly living church. Uh, For one thing, it is taught in Scripture in a number of places as you go through the the Bible. And of course, here uh, we'll look at this passage We think uh, particularly of Matthew chapter 18, which gives us that pattern of incremental address for sins in someone's life. If a brother sins against you, go to him uh, and confront him. And if he repents, you've won your brother. If not, take uh, one or two others and go and speak to him. And if not, uh, if he doesn't respond, you go to the church. In our context, that would be the leadership of the church's session. And have it addressed by the church. And if he still does not repent of sin, then he becomes uh, to you as a tax collector. He's effectively put outside the church or because of his refusal to repent, judged by the church by that to be uh, a a false professor, an unbeliever, because he will refuse to repent of sin in his life. And that's not a quick and, and it's not an easy process, but it is a biblical process. You go and talk to the person, not about the person, but you talk to the person. Um, biblically, church discipline has three basic purposes. One is to defend and vindicate the honor of Christ against whom the person is sinning and against whose church he is sinning. Uh, second purpose and discipline is to maintain the purity of the church. Uh, and then the third goal or, or purpose in church discipline is to reclaim the, uh, the sinner who has strayed. And certainly, that is a desire as well. And we'll look at that in just a second, uh, some particulars in Scripture on that. Um, discipline sometimes, at least initially and maybe for a long time, does not seem to have the result we desire. Uh, I've known cases, been involved in cases, uh, church level, presbytery level, uh, where it it doesn't go the way you would like it to. On the other hand, however, uh, church discipline uh, has also, and I've seen and been involved in cases where church discipline does bring about repentance and does uh, serve with the Lord's grace to soften someone's rebellious heart and bring them to repentance. Repentance. Now, as we look at this passage, we're looking uh, at the back half of a discipline case uh, where there's been a good result. And so as we study these verses tonight, uh, what we learn from this is that as God's people, we must be willing to reaffirm and, and embrace the repentant sinner. Uh, Paul is dealing with a case here, uh, obviously, where something's happened where a person has undergone discipline. The question is, what was it? What happened? Well, perhaps the most obvious answer to that question is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul writes to the church in Corinth and specifically addresses a case of flagrant sin within the church. And in verse 1 he says, this is 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated, even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife, in other words, his stepmother, uh, his his." Uh, father's wife, not his mother, but his apparently, but his stepmother. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Uh, Their attitude was all wrong. Maybe they were glorying in in the liberty that their church demonstrates. We don't know. Paul says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Uh, Now we said that um, part of the purpose of church discipline is to reclaim the erring uh, sinner, the erring sinner's gone astray, verse five, he says, "You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. why? so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The purpose of this is to is, is the, the salvation, the, the reclaiming of this man who is in this sin. Uh, however, the purpose here is also to, to, to protect, to maintain the purity of the church. Look at chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? The the metaphor here being the leaven working its way through the dough. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Uh, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Uh, I've always thought there was a funny expression that you may be a new lump. Uh, you see the t-shirts now, new lumps for Jesus uh, that would uh, maybe that's not going to catch on. But that's the image that Paul uses here. And the purpose is protecting the church, not allowing this sin by not being addressed uh, to to spread or to influence the rest of the church. And so you see uh, those purposes of discipline at work there. Now, this would be the most obvious answer to the question, what has happened here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2? And until relatively recently, that was accepted as, as what had happened. Uh, more recently, some have speculated that Paul is addressing a case where there was um, an opponent of Paul in Corinth, which obviously there were, and maybe a particular opponent who had led, a, uh, had led opposition Uh, against Paul and against his ministry and against his influence in the church. Now, it seems there was that in the church in Corinth. Um, It's hard to say, really, although it seems to me that that second option is less likely in that Paul, as we've read through the passage, and we'll see it here in just a minute more, seems to indicate that it's the, the Corinthians, that, that that need to, to deal with the person that they're the ones that need to forgive. They're the ones that need to embrace. Paul it just doesn't seem to indicate that this is someone who sinned against him, someone who has has harmed him. Uh, he says, uh, "What I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, or if I have anything to forgive." Paul almost seems to say, "This is this is your problem, and you've dealt with it, and now you need to forgive." It just doesn't seem as personal as if this was somebody who was in opposition to Paul. So it seems to me best to stick with the traditional understanding that Paul is addressing the case of this man who was involved in this immorality. And in 1 Corinthians, he admonishes the church to discipline the man. He needs to be put out. This needs to be addressed and dealt with. Apparently they have and to good result. Now, regardless of the exact details of of the sin or the case, um, the result, it turns out, is good, and the instruction would be the same in either case. Now, Paul has been talking about God's amen to us in Christ uh, back in chapter 1. Verse 20, all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That's why it's through Him we utter our amen to God for His glory. And it's God who establishes us with you in Christ. The promises of God are yes, they are amen to us in Christ. And what Paul effectively says now is to this man who has repented, the amen that God has given to you, you need to give to him. That the promises of God in Christ are amen to this man, regardless of his sin, if there is real repentance, genuine contrition, then the grace of God needs to be extended by the church to this man. Now, in verse 5, uh, we've already talked a little bit about the nature of the sin. If anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, which again seems to indicate this was not someone who is opposing Paul but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. Uh, In other words, they have offended, they have hurt the church, the Corinthians there. And again, it's difficult to know the exact details, but it seems most obvious from 1 Corinthians that it was this case of immorality. And we notice the term Paul uses, if anyone has caused pain. Now, when someone in the church falls into some sin or something's taking place, It's very easy to get angry, but it seems that the appropriate response here is is pain or grief. Anger is in some ways an appropriate response. They're hurting the church, they're hurting themselves, they're hurting other people, uh, whatever the sin might be. But it also can lead to a non-constructive response. And anger in some ways is also the response of self-righteousness. How dare he, how dare she do that? Uh, Almost as if I wouldn't. Well, anger, while understandable, is not the emotion Paul addresses, addresses here. If anyone has caused pain, if anyone has caused grief, and it does affect the church, it's caused grief to all of you, to Paul too, to some degree, but not specifically. But Paul says not to put it too severely to all of you. So sin in the church uh, does cause pain. It hurts the church. And it sh- the, the response to it should be that primarily of, of grief, of emotional pain uh, for the person involved, for others who have been hurt, and for the church as a whole. Now, verse 5 describes or mentions the sin, the pain it causes. Verse 6, Paul talks about the discipline, talks a little bit about what happened. Look at verse 6. For such a one, This punishment by the majority is enough. A couple of things. One, what punishment? Well, uh, if we operate on the basis that the sin is what is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the punishment seems to be uh, exactly what Paul prescribed for them to do uh, in verse 2. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Uh, verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, which is a somewhat uh, uh, enigmatic statement. What does that mean? Uh, I think it means no more and no less than putting the person outside the church, outside the boundaries of the church. I back out into Satan's realm as one of Satan's, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. If the man is a believer that the Lord would use that to bring him to repentance. If perhaps he's not a believer, that the Lord would use that to bring him to conversion. Uh, again, in verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. And then finally, um, verse 12, Paul says, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? In other words, if the church renders these cases of discipline against its own members against professing believers against those who are accountable under the vows of the church not everybody out in the the community uh, who's not a believer verse 13 god judges those outside We leave them to god purge the evil person from among you so if we go by that the the punishment that was uh, rendered against this person was being cast out put outside the church in other words Uh, In our terminology, the punishment of excommunication, uh, which is at the end of a a long line of disciplinary actions, Uh, it's been said, and I think it's true, that ultimately the only sin for which you can be excommunicated is impenitence, refusal to repent, to to express repentance, uh, certainly, but hopefully, truly, uh, in your heart, repent of sins committed. Uh, If someone has sinned and the church has said they've sinned, they've been confronted, and time passes and they refuse to repent, Uh, ultimately uh, excommunication follows. They are cut off from the Lord's table. They are, in effect, by this judicial decision of the church, determined by their impenitence to be an unbeliever, or at least certainly acting like one, denying their profession of faith in Christ, and put outside the church. And that's what Paul's describing here. It's interesting, though, He says, this punishment by the majority is enough. Apparently, this was not a unanimous decision by the leadership of the church or the congregation as a whole, whatever the case might have been, however it was was carried out. Uh, It was not unanimous. But it was the action of the majority, uh, which tells us that... uh, One, a church or session or presbytery needs to be in substantial agreement. There needs to certainly be a majority of people who believe this is the action that needs to be taken. But the flip side of that is it does not have to be unanimous for action to be taken. And whatever reason, it seems here that that was not the case. And there's a reason for that. Sometimes, and if you've ever dealt with this, you know uh, whether formally as an officer in a church or informally dealing with a friend who's in some sin or there's some situation, the lines are not always clear cut. Sometimes it can be baffling to sort out what really is going on. Uh, and so it, for whatever reason, there was not a unanimous opinion here, but the majority did act. And Paul says the punishment is enough. It is sufficient uh, what has happened well, that we've seen the sin, the discipline here, and that leads to the follow-up. And this really is at the heart of what Paul is saying here. Uh, what do you do after the person repents? What happens next? Well, look at verses 7 through 10. Paul said the, the punishment is enough, verse 7, so that you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For well, this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. What I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Notice notice the, the, the uh, approaches or the, the the stances that they are to have toward the repentant person. One is compassion. Look at verse 7. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Uh, Overwhelmed there. The word means to swallow up. It's the same word that's used in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse 29, when it says that by faith the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea, but when the Egyptians uh, followed, they were drowned. It's the same Greek word. They were swallowed up. They were buried under the water. Uh, it's also the same verse that we come across in 1 Peter, or the same word in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, where he warns us, a familiar verse probably to all of you, that Satan is like uh, a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, right? to swallow up. That's the word that Paul uses here. So it's a very graphic and serious word if someone does repent, if someone has been grief-stricken, Convicted by the Spirit because of their sin, and they repent. That's a that's a tremendous and painful thing for a person to think. Not only have they offended and sinned against God, but of the damage they have done to other people and to Christ's church. And when God convicts, when God brings down uh, that sense of and that burden of uh, sinfulness, it can be an overwhelming. Kind of thing. Let me catch a glimpse of that. When Isaiah saw the Lord, he says, Woe to me, you know, judgment upon me, I'm undone. Well, maybe you've had something of that experience uh, uh, when, when God brings conviction of sin. But here, uh, there should be compassion because this person has been under the conviction of God, and that is, a, is an awesome thing. But also, not only compassion, but forgiveness. Look at verse 7. You should rather turn to forgive. And comfort him. And again in verse 10: Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. What I've forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Forgiveness. Um, very basic Christian principle. If this person is, is repentant and they have sought God's uh, forgiveness, God has forgiven. And as His church, we also should forgive the person. It may be painful. It may be hard to do. But as an expression of God's grace in Christ in forgiving us, we also turn and forgive the person. Now, forgiveness involves forgetting, right? If, if a husband or a wife has forgiven the other, it means that they don't bring it up two weeks later. Again, as fresh fodder in an argument. It's forgotten. It's buried. It's left alone. It's left in the past. And so it is in the church. If we forgive someone, it doesn't mean two months later when visitors come to the church, we point at them and say, psh, psh, you know what they did. Psh, psh, well, they were under judgment for you know, such and such. You don't do that. If it's forgiven, it's forgotten. It's in the past. We leave it alone. We leave it behind. So forgiveness, compassion, forgiveness. Uh, we also follow up with comfort. Look at verses 7 through 8 should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Comforting someone, reaffirming love, welcoming the person in, not now as a second-class citizen in the church, but someone who has experienced the forgiveness of God and experiences the forgiveness and the comfort or encouragement of the church. In doing so with an eye toward Christ, finally, uh, also in following up, Paul says, uh, if I have forgiven anything, it has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Um, Paul seems to be saying there, this, it's done with the view to the fact that we live before the eye of Christ. We live before the face of God, and Christ sees what we do. If he has forgiven us, and we in turn refuse to forgive another, Christ sees that. That that offense is carried out in his presence. Uh, And so as a church, as believers, uh, anytime we forgive someone, but particularly in a case like this, we do so recognizing that we're living out our lives in these situations before the eye of Christ. And so the follow-up there, the the complete lack of self-righteousness in welcoming the prodigal home, uh, is an appropriate expression of love and God's grace to the repentant sinner. But then the fourth thing that Paul mentions here, we've seen him talk about the sin, talk about the discipline, talk about the follow up when the person has repented. Uh, the last thing he mentions here is a wariness against Satan, a wariness of Satan. Look at verse 11. He says, I forgive and, and you all forgive, verse 11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for you're not ignorant of his designs. How would they have been outwitted? Paul says we do this so we would not be outwitted. We wouldn't be tricked by Satan. How does, how, does, how is Satan outwitting or tricking them, trapping them, if there's a refusal to forgive? One person puts it this way. He says, Satan delights to make a person under discipline feel that neither God nor his people love him and that there is no place for repentance and forgiveness. Uh, Douglas Kelly, my theology professor in seminary, uh, wrote this these words. He said, if you want to give an open door for the devil into your marriage, or into your relationship with your children or grandchildren, or into a congregation. Be hesitant and slow to forgive. Hold things against people. Be embittered, touchy, and testy. Be a bit cold to somebody who did you wrong but has apologized. Then you are opening the door wide open for the devil to come in and wreak his havoc. Where God is forgiven, we must forgive. And that's what Paul is saying here. To do otherwise. Somehow think, well, you know, if we forgive, we're lowering our standards. Well, if you want to see lowered standards, look at yourself. Why are you in the church? (laughs) You know, it's back to the, if you find the perfect church, don't join it. You'll ruin it. Uh, Are we lowering the standards of the church by receiving the repentant sinner? Well, we received you, didn't we? Uh, No. And God doesn't lower his standards because Christ has met the standards. But to turn around, whether it's in a case like this or in your marriage or with your children or, or a friend or whatever the case might be, and refuse to give, repent or give forgiveness where forgiveness is called for, is to open the door for Satan to come in and, and cultivate a nice crop of bitterness, anger, hostility, uh, all of these things. And, and Paul ends by saying we're not ignorant of his designs. That's the way he works, where the grace of God is denied, where forgiveness is forbidden, uh, where self-righteousness carries the day, and where there's a refusal to forgive, where forgiveness is called for it, very often is simply a case of self-righteousness. It can destroy a marriage, it can destroy a friendship, it can certainly destroy a church. But, you know, when you read that, and I remember when we studied 1 Corinthians, you read chapter 5 and we're just aghast, you know, oh, that this thing could happen in the church. But these things do happen in churches because churches are made up of sinners. Redeemed sinners, but sinners. Uh, and it's a shocking thing, chapter 5. But in, in 2 Corinthians, I believe we have the rest of the story. And there's a good result. And there are people who could be angry at this man for what he did. But Paul calls on them to receive the man who obviously is, as Paul describes that under great conviction and uh, experiencing genuine contrition for what happened to respond with grace to respond with forgiveness because they are the church they are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and that is how Christ responds to sinners with compassion with love with grace With forgiveness. And dear friends, if that is how Christ has responded to someone, then we individually and we in the church must so respond as well. Let's pray. Father, often in a case like the one described in 1 Corinthians, emotions run high, people are truly hurt, uh, damage is done. Uh, But Father, we thank you that where we have committed the far greater sins that we have committed against the majesty and the holiness and the honor of Christ, and You have forgiven us, that as Your people, as believers, uh, as Your church, Lord, that You would give us grace to receive the sinner repentant with forgiveness, with compassion. Lord, that it would be a delight, it would be a joyful thing to receive back the contrite sinner, the repentant sinner. Father, we pray that your church, we pray that this church would be characterized uh, by being quick to forgive, ready to extend grace. Lord, we don't lower your standards at all. But Lord, where someone has repented, we pray there would be a complete absence of self-righteousness and much rejoicing when you bring a prodigal home just as you rejoiced and ran to meet him.